0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, guys, as Janine said, my name is Father Pat Schultz. I'm a priest that hails from the Diocese of North. I'm from the Diocese of Cleveland. Anybody else from Cleveland here? Okay, Cleveland people, that's great. On the count of three, tell me your name, one, two, three. Wow, that sucked, I'm not going to lie. All right, let's try it again, one, two, three. Okay, not bad, okay, it's great to meet you. All right, so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to start off with, uh, I want to show you a video. Mary, Sarah, just be ready on the volume to make sure that the volume is ready to rock and roll. Um, This video I want to show you. Has arguably one of my favorite little human beings in it of all time. I've never met this kid, but he's my hero. Let's watch. You gotta have the, oh, oh, there we go, okay. Okay. my hero. That kid's my hero. I love that so much. Oh, man. Me and her kissed on the lips. Oh, that's the best. So, I, when I was in preschool, when I was in preschool, I think I proposed to every girl in my preschool class by the time I was five. I got I got married on the playground several times by six years old. I don't know if my bishop knows that, but, you know... It's fine, it's fine. I'm um, supposed to turn this microphone on. Um, okay, so that was my, like, I remember there was a girl in my preschool class, her name was Sarah. And Sarah and I, we would sit next to each other for, for like snack time, and she gave me her grapes, guys. Woo-hoo-hoo! Oh yeah. I think her and I also held hands once, and we probably kissed on the lips. Uh, so what this is like, this is puppy love, right? This is puppy love. We all have memories of puppy love, right? Preschool. First grade, kindergarten, those whole years, right? I remember, though, right, things changed. Puppy love changed the older I got, in particular, after fifth grade going into sixth grade, okay? Because where I went to school, sixth grade was, you're now in middle school. I don't know if, that, if that's how it is down here, but in sixth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you moved up to Hudson Middle School, which was a totally different world. I remember finishing fifth grade, going to summer break, coming back to school in sixth grade, and like, your 11-year-old boy walking around the school and there's like 8th grade girls in the school and you're like, what? What is, what is, what? Is? There's, there's body parts that are now present in the school that I don't remember in 5th grade, alright? So, that's, that's what I'm saying. Okay, you with me? Are you with me? Okay. And you're like, what is he talking about already? I remember being like, just dumbstruck. And this was like, sixth grade was the first time that people started going out. Started going out. So I had a, I had a crush on this girl. We'll call her Chelsea, because that was her name. And um, <laughs> so Chelsea was super cute. And I had this this notebook that I I kept notes of, like the things I observed about Chelsea in this notebook. Okay, look, some people call that stalking. <laughs> I call that doing recon, okay? So I would observe, like, I just things that I would observe, like, oh, she has math in third period. Write that down, math in third period. I found out that her, what her sister's name was. I found out what her dog's name was. I remember she went to vacation down in, like, I don't know, somewhere in South Carolina. Obviously, it doesn't matter to me anymore. So. But then there was this moment, there was this moment that I found out from her friends telling my friends telling me, I think Chelsea wants to go out with you. I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out. So I'm sitting in study hall, and I did what you did back in, you know, the early 2000s. You ripped out a piece of paper from your notebook, right? All the frilly edges on the side. And I wrote a note. I wrote a note to Chelsea. Basically, the note was something like this. I poured my heart out to Chelsea. Like, it was like Romeo and Juliet. It was soaring It was iambic pentameter. I had such beautiful images. Probably not. But I wrote, I just poured my heart out for this girl. And then at the bottom of the note, I wrote, will you be my girlfriend? And I did the two boxes, yes, no, and I just wrote check yes or check no. So, I folded up the note, put it into like a little paper football, and I started, I sent it through study hall, this is before we had cell phones. I sent it through study hall, through my friends to her friends, and she gets it. She starts opening the note. And mind you, my heart at this moment is like in my chest right now, I'm like, I'm gonna die. So I see her open the note, and she gets this big, goofy pen out with had like a feather on top of it or something, one of those gel pens or something, right? Okay, so then I see her look up, she looks at me, looks down at the note, makes a mark, folds it back up, I'm like, what did she say? Guys, she checked yes. Let me tell you about this hot and heavy romance I had with Chelsea for about uh, four days. (laughs) So for those four days, we sat next to each other at lunch. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is what my boyfriend duties consisted of. I had to go buy her breadsticks which I did dutifully. Also, she liked nacho cheese with her breadsticks. That should have been a red flag for me, honestly. So it was kind of gross, okay? So I got the nacho cheese for the breadsticks, and then this is what would happen. So we would sit next to each other at lunch, she would talk to her friends, I would talk to my friends, and we held hands during lunch. Woo, baby, right? For the first two days, we held hands, we were holding hands like this, right, okay? Day three, we move to this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, so this was the other thing, too. So she was, she was a righty and I was a righty. So I, I wanted to, you know, I was chivalrous. I wanted to sacrifice my right hand so that she could, you know, hold my hand with her left hand so she could eat lunch with her right hand, right? If you ever tried to eat lunch with your non-dominant hand, as an 11-year-old boy, you end up looking like you just wear your lunch, essentially, right? So lunch would end up be covered in nacho cheese, which is super attractive, and uh, lunch the lunch bell would end. We would look at each other, and be like, "Okay, bye." And we'd hug each other, and then we would see each other at each other's lockers at the end of the day. And that was my romance, guys. And I'm a priest. Oh yeah, uh huh, yeah. It's true. It's true. She broke up with me. It was. Uh, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. Yeah. So here's the deal, right? So sixth grade came along. All these different changes. Middle school. Puberty's is happening, pre-teen years, all this crazy stuff is happening at the same time. Like, nobody sat me down as an 11-year-old boy and said, All right, Patrick, you're at that stage of life where you need to start, like, being attracted to the other sex. You need to start noticing and wanting to go out with the other sex. No one did that. No one sat me down and said, this is the time of your life for that to happen. No, no, that, like, that movement from puppy love into, like, I don't know, teenage romantic-ish love, that just happens, like, nature does her thing as we age and grow, and we just start noticing the opposite sex. And there's attraction, there's this, there's this magnetism that happens. It's just natural. And I'm here today, I'm here tonight, to tell you that all of that, that love, desire, passion, all of that stuff, that is bad and sinful, and it's going to send you to hell. <laughs> so don't even think about it. Just kidding, not true. No. God is the author. God is the author of love. He's the author of our bodies. He's the author of sexuality. It was his idea. All of this was his idea. His very first commandment to humanity in the garden was be fruitful and multiply. This is not the Lord saying, I want you to grow apples and do math problems. If you know what I'm saying, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Matthew, (laughs) (laughs) that was his first commandment. That's his first commandment. This is the Lord who made us, he made us, he gave us these desires, he gave us these bodies, he made us male and female from the beginning for a reason, for a reason, for a great reason we would say, he's made us for greatness, right, to be human is an extraordinary thing, right, we're made in God's image and likeness, we're the only creatures who are in God's image and likeness, like as awesome as planets are, as gorgeous as galaxies and sunrises and sunsets are, as amazing as angels are, as adorable as little baby otters are. None of them are also made in God's image like this. only you and I are. We have what the church fathers, so the earliest Christians, we have this thing. They described it as the Cappax Dei. It means capacity for God. We were made to live in union in relationship with God. No other creature has that. We are capable of being united to our God. We're capable of knowing Him and loving him and serving him. We're capable of being in relationship. All because of how we're made as men and as women. It's so significant. It's so, so, so significant. So, like, knowing how we're called to live, how we're called to, like, respect ourselves, like, knowing how to find freedom and happiness and joy, everything that we all want in life, it all presupposes this. It presupposes that we know where we come from and where we're going and how to get there. In other words, the story... Being a member of the human race means that we're part of the great story. It's his story. His story. And a big problem in our world today is we've just forgotten the story, or we were never told the story in the first place. We don't know our story. We don't know where we come from. We don't know where we're going. and We don't know how to get there. Because again, as a human being, we are the only creatures who wake up in the morning and wonder like, what should I do with my life? Like, there's no, there's no other creature. Like, there are no chickens anywhere clucking around a barnyard, like, eating the feed. And all of a sudden, it, like, looks up and thinks, am I fulfilling my potential as a chicken? Is there more to life than this barnyard? No, I'm just going to go. But your job is to be my Chick-fil-A sandwich, Mr. Chicken. Like, that's... That's your goal. That's, that's your, that is the highest thing you can get out of this life, right? I hope to be a Chick-fil-A sandwich. It's a, it's a noble calling, it's a noble calling. But we as human beings notice that, right? Like it's odd, it's odd that we sense in ourselves a restlessness that says, I have to make something of myself. Like just simply existing, just you know, metabolizing food, waking up, going to bed, that's just not enough. We have to become something, and the something that we're meant to become is saints, totally transfigured, unbelievably glorious humanity, greatness, again, we are made for a greatness that would dazzle you. The person who reveals to us this greatness is, of course, our Blessed Mother, right? Mary is, she is not the, I think we often think of Mary as like the aberration, like she's the exception from the norm. Like, we're the norm, and she's like the really holy one. No, no, no. Mary is the norm. We're the exception from the norm. She shows us what we are meant to be. She shows us, like, this is where you're headed. And I love this imagery, right? In the book of Revelation, we see that Mary is clothed in the sun. That's what it says. Here's the queen wearing stars as a crown, clothed in the sun. You don't seem very impressed with Mary's wardrobe. Okay, let's try this on for size. Okay, so like the sun, right? Okay, let's talk about the sun. I want you to imagine a bonfire that's, that's so hot that you have to stand about 10 feet away from it without getting burned to a crisp. That's a hot bonfire. Some of you guys are like, I made that bonfire last weekend, Father. Yeah, right? Now imagine a bonfire that's so hot you have to stand 50 feet away from it to not get burned. It's a really, really hot bonfire. Imagine a bonfire that's so hot that you have to be a mile away from it. It's getting crazier. Now imagine a bonfire that's so raging, so unbelievably hot. You have to be 93 million miles away from it. We call that the sun, right? And Mary is just nonchalantly, casually wearing the sun. Like, who is this woman of glory? Who is this person? Like, we can't even begin to wrap our heads around it. Again, greatness like you can't imagine. She is showing us where we are headed, which is union with God, filled with glory. She's the burning bush of the New Testament, right? The burning bush of the Old Testament, on fire, but not consumed, right? Not destroyed. That's who she is. She's filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit. That's who she is, and that's who we are meant to be. So to understand this story, to again remember who we are, we have to start where all stories start, which is the beginning, beginning. very good class, we're starting in the beginning, and the beginning for us in our story is which book of the Bible? Genesis. Genesis, you guys are crushing it, the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis we see a story that's unlike any other story from ancient Near Eastern mythology, it's completely unique. You're going to hear one day, for those of you who are not in college, you're going to hear one day from your college anthropology, college sociology professors, that like Christianity, it's just like every other ancient Near Eastern myth. That is a lie. (laughs) There's nothing like the story of Genesis in any other culture around the world. In Genesis, what we see is a God who creates by the sheer power of his word, a God who creates from nothing, right? By the sheer power of his generosity and his goodness, he just says, let there be and there is. There's not this great battle, this great struggle. Just let there be light and there's light. And everything he makes is good. The sky is good. The sea is good. The land is good. The birds are good. The blue whales are good. The, oh, the feathers on the duck's butt are good. It's all good. It's all good. Everything is good. Everything is good. It's not until the seventh day. It's not until the seventh day with the creation of the human person do we hear finally that it is very good. It's very good. Why? Because everything else that God had made up to this point is simply a stage. It's simply the context. It's the stage upon which the drama of divine and human love would be played out. The whole universe was created for you to meet the Lord. The universe is a tabernacle for God to dwell in. It's unbelievable. Everything was created for this purpose. That's why at the culmination he says it's very good. It's very good. So what do we see in Genesis? We see God forming man from the clay of the earth. And that first man's name is Adam. In Hebrew it's Adama. Anybody here named Adam? Oh, there's Adam right here. Anybody else named Adam? Oh, there's some back there. Okay, so do you know what your name means in Hebrew? It means Dirt man creature of dirt dirt man okay so i have uh from the vatican archives i have an actual photo of adam do you want to see it all right i thought so all right here's adam dirt man there he is (laughs) he's just like yeah (laughs) That's the best. Okay. So we hear that God forms man from the dust of the earth, the clay of the earth, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. This is so significant. We don't have time to go into all of this tonight. But what this reveals is that we are these creatures who are both material and spiritual, right? Body and soul. Matter and spirit, both together. United together. We're not souls trapped in bodies, right? I don't I don't have a body. I am a body. Right? When you like Get sick, you don't say things like, Man, my body is sick. You say, I'm sick, right? If I punch you, you don't say, Hey, why'd you punch my body's arm? That sounds so stupid and weird, right? You say, Why'd you punch me? Right? You don't sue me for property damages, you're like, I'm gonna take you to court, right? So, God breathes into us this spirit, and we become this living being, and we have, by God's grace, this. These two powers that are unique among creation, we have intellect and will, which means we can know what's true and we can choose what's good. All of this gives us the capacity to love. We have the capacity to love because we have freedom. We can choose the good. We can choose to love, all of that. So Adam is planted in the garden. He's planted in the garden. And he's told to till and to keep the garden now adam is at work he's doing all of this and it's god who notices that there's a problem here it's god who notices not adam it's god who notices it's not good for the man to be alone for those of you who are moms who have sons you're like it's not good for my son to be alone right it's something bad's gonna happen right so god does something funny before he makes eve He starts to fashion the other creatures. He starts to fashion these other animals. And he brings them to the man that he would name them. Right? So here's Adam tilling the garden. and God's like, here, Adam. I brought you a horse. He's like, God, I don't think this is going to work out between me and the horse, God. I I appreciate it, but I don't think this horse is going to be my wife. I don't think this is going to work. Brings him another creature. Here comes an elephant. I don't know, God, what you're thinking. Uh, So God puts Adam into a deep sleep. Now, here's the question. Is God stupid? Yes or no? No. Very good. Okay, he's not stupid. So what is he doing when he does this? He's trying to help Adam realize his uniqueness. That he's distinct among the creatures that God has made. That he alone is this amazing thing called a person. All these other animals, they are something. They're not someone. Their materiality, their bodiliness, it doesn't correspond to Adam's body. He's not, these creatures aren't the kind of thing. I'm like gesturing like there's horses and elephants right here. These are not the kind of animals. These are not the kinds of creatures that correspond to Adam's body. They're not some body that he can love, right? So, God puts Adam into a deep sleep, but up until this point, Adam is alone in this garden. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we have actual audio recordings of Adam singing in the garden by himself. I know a guy who works in the Vatican. I'm not going to tell you my sources, but I got the MP3 file. You want to hear it? Here's Adam alone in the garden, Adam singing. Yes, Oh, man, you can have enough Justin Bieber in your presentation. <laughs> All right. So there he is. I need somebody to love, right? He needs somebody to love. Because he's made in the image and likeness of a God who is love, and there is no one there for him to? Love. He needs somebody to love. So God puts him into this deep sleep and removes from his side the rib, right? There's just a lot of significance and symbolism to this. Again, not enough time to go into it tonight, but I'll just say this. that Notice this. Adam, again, let's buy my review. Adam is made from what? Clear. The dirt, the clay, the earth. Eve, what is she made from? Adam. She's made from Adam. Eve is made from something. The woman is made from something that already contains within itself a higher degree of perfection, a higher degree of beauty. She's made from finer stuff, ladies. Are you hearing me? Right? <laughs> She's made from finer stuff. Eve is not made second as like an afterthought. It's not as though God says, well, he, he needs someone to do his laundry. I'll, here's Eve, right? The word that God uses in Hebrew is ezer Genegdo. I will make a helper, ezer Genegdo, for you. What does that mean? Well, everywhere else in the Old Testament where you see the word ezer, it refers to God. Like God is the ezer. He's the divine assistance. And Genegdo is just a preposition. It just means in front of you. So it's as if God is saying, Adam, here is the divine assistance right in front of you. Like She was made to save Adam from the abyss of solitude. She humanizes him. She humanizes him. And by the rib, it signifies, Thomas Aquinas says this, the rib signifies mutuality and equality. But if she was made from Adam's foot, it would have symbolized her inferiority. But the rib is right there on the side. And let's look at this, too. What does a rib do? What's the function of a rib in the body? What does it do? It's protective. Exactly. It's a rib cage. It's protective. And what has God done? He's put like a chink in the armor, so to speak, around the man's heart. Powerful stuff. So, Adam's in the deep sleep. God removes the rib from the side, fashions the bride, Eve. Stunning. Beautiful. The first woman that has ever lived... And he wakes up. I don't know if you know this, but we have actual audio (laughs) recordings. The moment that Adam woke up and saw his bride. You want to hear this? True. This is, is totally authentic. Here is Adam in the garden. So you have to picture him. He's waking up from his deep sleep. He's like rubbing his side. He's like, oh man, my side kind of hurts. And then he looks and he sees this woman, the first woman, and he is just like and he just lets out this cry from his heart and he just goes Atlanta. he starts like walking My towards her hey you know where the gym is in this garden listen Oh, baby. All right, that's Adam in the garden. That's unbelievable, right? A lot of people think that was out of James, but they'd be wrong. (laughs) At last, at last, right? These are the first words of Adam waking up to see his bride Eve. Up to this point, he's he's like a caveman. He's just naming the animals. He's like, dog, rooster, platypus. (laughs) I don't understand the platypus God, whatever, but platypus... Then Eve comes along, the woman comes along, and all of a sudden he turns into Bill Shakespeare. He's like, this one at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because he looked at her and he went, whoa, man, you got it. It's not true. It's not true at all. So this is Adam, right? So here we have the union and communion. The relationship between the man and the woman, the husband and wife, because that's what, that's what Genesis is telling us. This is a marriage. These words, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, those are prototypical marriage words in the Old Testament. These are vows, if you will. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So the union and communion, the relationship between husband and wife in the beginning, was a sign, it was making visible the union of, of the the relationship of our God, right? So we believe in a God who is a Trinity, right? We start every prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is this endless exchange of life and love. Like that's who and what he is. This is an icon of the blessed Trinity. Very, very old icon from a Russian iconographer depicting the persons of the Trinity as these three angelic figures from the, the visit that they had to Abraham. Our God is this eternal exchange of life and love. Endless bliss, endless life, endless love. From all eternity, the Father giving himself to the Son. From all eternity, the Son receiving the love of the Father and giving it back. And that relationship is so super substantial. Coming forth, spirating forth is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is who our God is. And so when this invisible mystery, when this invisible God goes to make a visible image of himself in creation... He doesn't just make a man. He doesn't just make a woman. He makes a couple. He makes a couple whose bodies and souls are complementary. And they're ordered towards each other in that mutual fascination, mutual attraction. It's what I experienced in sixth grade, y'all, right? That's what we're talking about. Their bodies and souls fit together. They're ordered towards each other. When the two become one, in the one flesh union, they become so much one that nine months later, you've got to give it a name. <laughs> and they're three in one. Who else do we know is three in one? The Trinity. The Trinity. Like this is what we're meant to see, that marriage and family, all of this stuff, it is so significant. It is so significant, it reveals who God is on earth. It's the lens to understand who he is, and it's the lens to understand the kind of relationship that he wants to have with us. God is not simply interested, he's not merely interested in friendship with you. Friendship's great, but he wants more. Like, have you ever paused to consider or wonder, like, how much life do you suppose God wants to share with you? Like 40%, 50%? Like 60 seems like that's a lot, God. He wants all of it. He wants to be so united that it's as if he's saying the least inadequate image that I could give you to describe how I want to relate to you, he's saying it's as if I want to be married to you. I want a marital kind of relationship, a spousal kind of relationship. Those of you who are married... What makes you a spouse, what, what happened in your heart that said, I want to be espoused to this person, is that you discovered in yourself, like, I want to share everything with you. Not just my mind, not just hobbies, not just the weekends. I want to give you my last name. I want to give you my good days, my bad days. I want to give you everything. Everything that I have, I want to be able to bestow upon you total gift of self that's what spousal love is this is what the lord is saying i want a spousal kind of relationship with you this is why from the beginning from start to finish the bible is telling the spousal love story right the bible begins with the marriage in eden the bible ends with the marriage in the book of revelation the bookends of the bible are marriages jesus's very first miracle was at the wedding feast of do you think that's just a coincidence right He could have done anything for his first miracle. But when God comes in the flesh, when the bridegroom comes among us, the very first thing he does is he turns 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of the choicest wine, which was in Jewish custom in the first century world, it was the job of the bridegroom to provide the wine for the feast. And not much else. And that has continued to the day, to our day today. Make sure there's enough booze for the party. That was his job. Who provides the wine for the wedding? Jesus, the bridegroom, right? Like this is why, friends, this is why our sexuality matters. Our bodies matter because the story, the scriptural story, the Christian story, our story, is a love story. It's the story of a bridegroom in pursuit of his bride. It's the story of God wanting union with you and me. And if the image he's giving us to understand all this is marriage, if you were the devil, what would be the one thing you would attack to confuse the most people? Our humanity, marriage, sexuality, the body. Like, friends, welcome to our world. Welcome to our world. He's going after, like, the glasses, he wants to crush and destroy our ability to see. Again, this is why Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, is healing people's sight. Bartimaeus, Lord, I want to see. What does he say to the disciples of John the Baptist who are following him? Come and become one who sees. To the man blind by the pool of Siloam, he spits on the ground, makes mud, smears the mud into his eyes. He's not a good ophthalmologist. And he recovers his sight. He wants us to be able to see. There is an enemy who is blinding us, who is trying with, like, all of his diabolical hellish fury, trying to blind us to our greatness, our humanity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? This all-out assault against the body and sexuality and gender, all of it, it comes straight from the pit of hell, from the enemy who hates our bodies, because that's what we have That he doesn't. He hates our bodies. Because our bodies give us a capacity. For union. The angels can never touch God. Just chew on that for a little while. They can never touch God. But you can. He comes into you. From the Book of Wisdom, we hear that it's through the envy of the devil that death entered the world. Like his motivation for attacking us in the garden was envy. He was envious of this in us, he was envious of our bodies. This is the story. This is is what happened. The whole story was interrupted. We were attacked. Hang on, I'll go back here. We were attacked from the beginning. We were attacked from the beginning. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we have actual footage of the fall of man. It's horror, it's horrified. Um, Are you prepared to see this? All right, here we go. I give you Adam dancing in the garden, preparing for the fall of man. This is Adam in the garden, everybody, free and alive. give you the fall of man. (laughs) I told you it was horrifying. (laughs) Okay, so the fall, let's talk about the fall for a second. The fall was not merely the breaking of a rule. That's the wrong rubric. That's the wrong lens. The fall was the rupture of relationship. Everything was disintegrated. So, the relationship, the horizontal relationship between man and woman, husband and wife, was sundered. It was broken. It was divided. And the relationship between God and humanity, likewise, broken, divided. That's what the fall was. It was the breaking of relationship. Our relationships with each other were skewed, and our relationship with God was skewed. So, like, the fall affected men and women differently. We hear in Genesis, that it says, He will seek to dominate you will seek to manipulate so what does God do he launches a rescue mission he says I want to bring you back I want to reunite you to myself I want to bring you back you can think of the entire Old Testament as God's rescue mission he's trying to reunite himself to humanity He does it through this amazing group called Israel he offers them covenants over and over again In other words, like the story of God's desire to rescue us. He's written this story into our bodies. I want to reunite myself to you. I want you back. I want to win you back. This story is in our bodies. It's carved into our bodies as men and women. This is why St. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. Then he says this, this is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ in the church. That Christ in the church, he's saying, is like a marriage. And the whole Old Testament is like God trying to say, I'm trying to win my bride back. I'm trying to rescue her. I'm trying to restore this. I'm trying to fix this. Like Pope St. John Paul II. Who's a fan of JP2? All right, my people. JP2, he said that Ephesians chapter 5, it contains... A summary of everything that God wants to tell us Ephesians chapter 5 is a distillation a summary of the entire message of salvation which is again this God wants union with us that's the story so to understand that union to understand that story we have to better understand our earthly masculinity and our earthly femininity and usually when we get together to talk about our masculinity and femininity in a church setting we usually break off into guys groups and girls groups, right? have men's talk, women's talk, men's sesh, women's sesh we are not doing that tonight, people we're stirring together in this gym until the second coming, no, just kidding but yeah, the guys get together and you have someone up there being like, be a man and someone's up there for the girls going you're a princess don't forget you're a princess you're a daughter of the king all true." I sat in on a women's session once. I'm like, I shouldn't be here. (laughs) I felt like a spy. So St. John Paul II, my hero, we're going to talk about his vision of humanity. He wrote this. Get this. This is so beautiful. Human life, its dignity and its balance depends at all times and in all places on who she will be for him and who he will be for her. Human life, its dignity, its balance depends on all times, all places, on who he will be for her and who she will be for him. Notice he didn't say who they will be for each other. He specified it. Like the mode of love is different for each. She loves him in a way that's distinctly feminine. He loves her in a way that's distinctly masculine. Men and women, this is going to be the most controversial thing I say tonight, are different Mic drop, walk away. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it used to be obvious. It actually still is obvious, right? It's still very obvious. But we're living in a very diluted world right now. Just to remind ourselves how different men and women are, let's watch this. There's Adam. <laughs> Upon on the mountain where your love captured me, where finally I'm free. This is <laughs> up on the mountain where you taught my soul <laughs> <laughs> And Here I am oh, take me up to where I was when I never wanted more. Thank you. Lift me up to feel your touch. It wouldn't be enough. Oh, you decide. Like this I know. Take me up to where I was When I never wanted to go you Lift me up feel your touch It wouldn't be that much Oh, yes I know That's awesome. Some of your dads are like, those are some great costume ideas, right? Oh, man, so good. Built into the heart, built into the soul, built into the body of the man is a call, a desire to protect. It's a desire to protect and defend the bride. It was Adam's job from the very beginning to lay down lives, to lay down our lives for her. There are guys in this room, I guarantee you, there's guys in this room who've maybe checked out a little bit and like, Instead of listening to me, you, are, you have begun to do the, the daydream, which is, what would I do if, like, terrorists came into this gym right now? The girls are laughing, thinking, that's ridiculous. But I'm telling you, ladies, every single guy in this gym, at some point in school, like, if you were looking at the guys in your class, and you're like, all right, we're math class, and his, he just looks like there's nothing happening in that brain... One of two things are happening. One, he's actually thinking of nothing. We have this ability as men to go into what they call a sub-hibernating uh, state in our brains, or they're literally thinking, what would I do if, like, bad guys came into my school right now? Like, I would grab this, the three-hole puncher and bludgeon the guy to death. I'd put all the desks against the door. I'd put her over there because I like her. And I'd take pencils, be like Wolverine, and I would kill the guy, right? I have, I have given that as an example everywhere I've gone, and I've like, it never fails. The guys are like, yeah, absolutely. I would totally do the three-hole puncher, beat him to death with it. The girls are like, that is so weird. We're different, we're different. It's totally normal, it's totally normal. Okay, so from a, bio- let's think about this. From a biological standpoint, from a biological standpoint, like from an evolutionary standpoint, we, we are different, right? Like as men, and you're like, that's a weird slide. Let's keep moving on. God has given us a difference in the way that we reproduce, right? 500 something million sperm trying to get to one egg. That like there's a super abundance related to fatherhood and masculinity. Like our cargo, so to speak, in terms of reproduction is far less precious than the cargo that we that that women carry. That women carry, which is why nature makes more men than women on average because we're the far more dispensable ones. It's true, it's true. Our bodies are different. Our bodies are, as men and women, they're different. We have bodies that are more angular and muscular as men. Like the skin literally on our back is thicker than the skin on your back as women. Why? Because if push came to shove in a crisis moment, we would use our bodies as, as, little, as literal shields. Remember a few years ago when that guy went into the theater in Colorado and shot up the, the people when they were watching The Dark Knight? There were men who were on dates with their wives or girlfriends at the time, and they literally used their bodies as human shields to protect the, the women they were with. How bizarre would it be if, like, there she... I'm not saying it, it can't happen. I'm not saying it's, it wouldn't happen. But we all intuitively know it would be, be bizarre if she used her body to protect his, and she died instead of him. We all sense intuitively that there's something wrong about that. In moments of fight or flight... Blood moves in different directions in our bodies as men and women. For men, in fight or flight, blood moves out to our extremities, to our limbs, to our hands, to our arms, so that we can fight. Women, your blood moves inwards towards your core, towards your womb, to preserve it if there's life there. It's nuts. Adam was supposed to protect and defend Eve, but from the beginning, Adam has, and Adam and his sons, they have failed. Like, men have Men have to own up to the failures and admit where we've been wrong. And when we have not lived up to our calling, instead of being protectors, men oftentimes are takers. Right? Lust. Lust is the opposite of love. Love says, this is my body given for you. Whereas lust says, that is your body for my sake. Right? This is the genesis. This is the, the, the seed at the bottom of the Me Too movement. Which was horrible and tragic. Women coming forward telling their stories of abuse and trauma. How do we have a world with a Me Too movement? It's because men have forgot what they were meant to be, which is protectors to be defenders. Back to John Paul II. Human life, its dignity and balance depends at all times and all places who she will be for him and who he will be for her. And their suffering, their mutual suffering comes about when they are not for each other who they're meant to be. Men and women are called to love each other in different and complementary ways. Like men are called to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Unto the end. St. Paul says this. It's so scandalous for our modern ears. He says, wives... Submit to your husbands. We hear that through the power dynamics of the last few centuries of all sorts of things. We hear that through the fallen lens of dominance. We're right to say, no, 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 I don't want that. But what if? What if we don't understand it? What if it's submissio under the mission? Wives, put yourself under the mission of your husband. What is the mission? Of the husband pour yourself out unto death for her in other words let yourself be loved That's what Paul's commanding let yourself be loved let him love you men are called to love as Christ loved who gave up his body for his bride And like, that's true, gentlemen, like this is all true for you now, even though you're not even married, even though you might not even be dating anybody. Like we are called to make a gift of ourselves, to start learning now how to make a gift of ourselves, to not be a taker, but to be a, a man of the gift. Which means that we have to start putting to death now those habits of heart that want to take, that want to possess. In other words, we have to start dealing with lust now. I know Grayson's going to talk a lot more about that in his, in his presentation, but like, this is where we have to begin recognizing that we are called to this. This is painful. It's a very painful journey to get to this place. But this is also the point of greatest joy, being able to give yourself. This is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. Like We see this, and there's just something right about this. Again, just imagine, not saying that it can't happen, not saying that it's just wrong, but imagine if it was reversed, if she was carrying him. Something odd about that. This is the right ordering of the missions. Both are called to an immense strength. Both are called to protect in different ways. But we do it as men, we do it as women. A friend of mine, he, uh, him and his wife, they got four little kids. It was a, like a year or two ago. They were both, kids were tucked in bed. They were asleep in their bed. And like a couple's worst nightmare, you hear like a crash through the window in the kitchen downstairs. They both hop up out of bed, spring into action immediately. Tell me right now, he runs where and she runs where? Where does he go? Downstairs, where does she go? Who was braver? Who had the better response? Who had the more protective instinct? It's a trick question. They both were responding in a masculine way and in a feminine way. And of course our prototypes, the the archetypes of all of this, the Holy Family, St. Joseph. My dear sisters, do you know why men are called to this for you? It's not because you are weak or pathetic or damsels in distress. It's because you are beautiful. Because you are the most beautiful thing that God has made. Because you are the supremely privileged bearers of life. Because you are a In the Catholic faith, we defend beautiful things. We protect beautiful things. And there's nothing more beautiful than the woman. Because you are living images of the church. Like before the church was hierarchical Organized in Peter, the church was already present at the Annunciation. The church's primary mission is to open and receive the gift from the Father. At the moment of the Annunciation, the church came into being because you have Mary there. Mary is the archetype, she's the face of the church. You are a living embodiment of the church, and even more than that, you are a living embodiment of heaven. Heaven is where God dwells, yes? Heaven is where God dwells. Well, for nine months, where was God dwelling? In the woman. In her womb. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Like every single woman, my sisters, every single woman, you are a living image of heaven on earth. Like next to our altar is the most sacred place in this universe is the womb. It's the womb. And of course... The devil hates the woman. Of course he hates the womb. This is what he's after. Because it's so holy. It's so sacred. The reason why he hates you in particular, my dear sisters, is because you remind him of her. He looks at every woman and he sees an echo of the one whose heel has crushed his head. He, his pride can't handle... That his defeat came, he could have been so much happier if his defeat came through St. Michael. His defeat came through a little girl from Nazareth. And you remind him of her. Every single one of you. God made men strong and big to protect and serve and love and die for you. And when we don't, we fail. Adam failed Eve. And Adam's sons, they continue, but they don't have to. I want to tell you a beautiful story about these beautiful people. Their names are Zef and Bitsy. I know very weird names, but they're wonderful people. They were married a number of years ago. They, uh, Zef, at one point he was training for the Navy SEALs. Can't really tell in this picture, but this dude is jacked. They both became nurses. They were working in a hospital in D.C. Bitsy was um, she was just coming off a long day shift, and it was. Evening time, And at that point, that day, a huge snowstorm had blown into D.C., shutting down basically everything. They don't have a lot of snow preparedness in D.C. So she gets in her car. She starts driving. Here's an important detail. She was wearing flats. I didn't know that that was an important detail of this story, but apparently, girls, you know what those shoes are? Yes? Okay. Uh, Of course you do. (laughs) So she was wearing flats. She wasn't wearing snow boots is my point, okay? So she gets in her car. She starts driving. She gets onto the highway and just comes to a standstill. No one's moving, the cars aren't moving. She puts her car in park and she's sitting there for a few minutes. She's like, we're not going anywhere. So she gets on the phone, she calls Zeph. She says, hey, this is what's going on. This is where I am. What do you think I should do? He goes, well, do you think you can get on, the, can you get on an off-ramp? She's like, no, I don't think so. Uh, I maybe can like, like ramp the curve and like, like sled down the, the embankment. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. He says, just stay in your car, leave the heat on, tell me what mile marker you're at. She tells him, he says, okay, I'm coming. So Zeph, he puts on boots, he puts on two winter jackets, hat, gloves, ski goggles, because it's blinding white out, and he begins to run from his house on the freeway to find his bride. Nine and a half miles he ran to find her on the highway. He gets there puts the coat on his wife, wearing flats, so she's also not going to start traipsing through the snow. He picks her up like this, and he runs back the nine and a half miles. Just pause for just a second. Everyone, please close your eyes. Humor me. Ladies, I just want to speak to you for just a moment. I want you to, to notice what just happened in your heart when you heard that story. Like, what bubbled up? Just notice. Why did you react that way? I heard some of you just kind of taking a sharp breath. I I just want to say, I think you reacted that way because it speaks to the deepest longings of your heart as a woman. And my brother is speaking to you right now. Just listening to that story, what, what happened in your heart? Why did you react that way? Again, I think it's because it speaks the deepest longing of your heart as a man. My dear sisters, if all can open your eyes with me, it's, it's not cheesy. Listen, it's not cheesy. It's not immature. It's not Disney princess fantasy to desire that a man would sacrifice for you, that he would pursue you, that he would run after you, that he would do that for you. It's not wrong to dream of heroic self-sacrificial love, to, do, to dream of yourself as being worthy of that. And my brothers, it is not wrong to desire to be the kind of man capable of a sacrifice like that. This is what we were made for. As men, we were made to be images of the lamb, the lamb sacrifice. Guys, every woman desires that you would be the man a man of sacrifice who put her needs first, that you would put to death everything in you that would compromise her, that you would be willing to die a thousand deaths before you saw an ounce of her dignity compromised. This is why, as men, we love movies like Braveheart. William Wallace going to war on behalf of the bride that was taken from him. Right, his friend Hamish at the end of the movie, you're not doing this for Scotland, you're doing this for yourself, you're doing this for modern, he says to her. You think she can see you? I know she can see me. This is why, ladies, this is why you love movies. This is why you love chick flicks, let's be honest. It's why you love movies like The Notebook. This is why, this is why the movie Titanic, I know it's kinda dated now, 1997. This is why Titanic became one of the highest grossing films of all time. They were girls, they were teenage girls, some of them are probably in this room, who saw Titanic 10, 11, 12 times in the theater. It's not because they became suddenly fascinated with early 20th century maritime history. (laughs) It's because of the story. Because of Rose and Jack and what she says. He saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Like God has set it up so that the bride would be an image, a sign of, of the church. That the woman would be a sign of the church. There's a man on the cross, there's a woman at the the foot of the cross. There he is giving the gift of himself, there she is receiving the gift. This is masculinity, femininity. This is why only a man can be a priest. This is why a man studies to be a priest in a seminary. He's supposed to be learning in the seminary. He's supposed to be learning how to give the gift of life to the bride. And the bride is supposed to open and receive. This is our story, this is who Jesus is. He says, I am the bridegroom. I am the bridegroom. At the culmination of Jesus' life, he goes to the cross and he pours himself out. Every drop of blood he has, he gives. Everything is given. At the culmination, he says, it is finished. Consumatum est. It is consummated. The wedding between heaven and earth. Remember how there was original union and then Division. This wedding is united, consummated on the cross, where the bridegroom gives himself to the bride. This is what we receive in every single Mass. This is the the story behind all the stories. Every single Mass, you have a bridegroom hidden in the Eucharist. And who walks down the aisle? The bride, to meet her bridegroom. Friends, this is our story. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. We are called to such greatness. And look, I know the enemy has told us so many lies about who we are. We have struggled and we've stumbled. And maybe we're caught up in all sorts of addictions, looking at things online, all sorts of behaviors, all sorts of things, and we have so much shame about this. Shame is not from the Father. Shame is from one place, it's from hell, and it wants to keep you imprisoned. Jesus wants to set us free. Friends, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, your son Jesus came to set captives free, to give sight to the blind, release to those in prison, to bring dead things back to life. Lord, we bring our hearts to you as your bride, as your church tonight, begging for the grace to understand more fully the story of our humanity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? That we would be grounded in the truth. We thank you, Lord. Seal in our hearts everything that was from you tonight may everything that is not of you be cast away. And we pray all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.